3: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
4: When I go in, this doctor, he's standing there and he says, okay, we need you to do so many squats. Okay. So I do the squats. Then he goes, okay, we need you to be able to stand here. And they brought in a male nurse. And they go, he needs to try to knock you down.
5: Most times when you get your back to work physical, the nurse takes your blood pressure and weight. But that's not what it's like working for the railroad.
4: I'm standing and I'm almost like in a sumo position. I'm standing there. He grabbed me by my arms to try to move me. So I just grabbed him and sling to the side. And so he comes back at me again. I throw him the other way. And so he's trying to wrestle with me, but I'm still throwing him all over the place. And this doctor's like, she's not moving. And the nurse is like, she's stronger than me.
5: Nikki was a Union Pacific freight conductor, trying to get cleared to go back to work. But this physical was testing her in ways that had nothing to do with her job. It was a setup. Usually when you get your physical, the doctor isn't expecting you to fail.
4: So the doctor's looking at me. He goes, well... You're beating all my tests, and you're knocking my nurse all around. What happened? They said you couldn't bend, you couldn't squat, you couldn't do anything. I said, you saw a fat girl and figured you could knock me down. But you got to realize, I do this job every day. <laughs> and if you look at me, I'm thick alicious, you know?
5: <laughs> the doctor asked Nikki why the railroad was putting her through this.
4: So I tell him, well, I had a superintendent. He said some things, I said some things. And he was mad. He said, I embarrassed him. And so he goes, so he's trying to burn you. I said, basically. So he wrote a nice note.
5: But even with the doctor's note, Nikki still hadn't heard the end of it.
4: Everybody knows when you piss off a manager or a superintendent, they come after you. It's the way at a railroad, you always know.
5: When I went to Colton, a hobo capital city, I wanted to see the risk Ruby took living on the outside. But hanging around Colton, I found another story, one about the people who keep the city of the rails in motion, the story of the people who drive the trains. We've been raised to think of engineers and conductors as these jolly figures. Throw away that childhood cartoon of Thomas the Tank Engine. For workers, the locomotive is the battleground, where when the employees get hurt, they say the railroad finds ways to blame them for their injuries so it doesn't have to pay. Plus now, after the East Palestine derailment in February, the issue of how the trains run and who runs them seems more important than ever. And the perfect place to examine this age-old conflict is a case made by one thickalicious train conductor. Settle in for Nikki Jackson versus Union Pacific, a tale of train yard bullying you'll not soon forget. I'm Danelle Morton, and this is City of the Rails.
1: I'm a, boy, a stranger through this world of hope. And the of In this world, too, where
5: After hanging around Roseville, meeting Jonathan and Robert, I understood working for the railroad wasn't exactly a regular way to make a living. The hours are crazy, and the workplace is a world of its own, separate from the one that most of us live in. In the last five years, it's gotten even rougher, while the railroads cut nearly a third of their workforce, and the workers haven't been quiet about that. When you cut things to the bone, those left have to work harder to get the job done. This forces the people in the city of the rails to form bonds that feel like family. Working on the rails, Nikki used to rely on her railroad family. But one incident in August 2017 kicked Nikki out of that family. And through her story, I saw how the railroad breaks you down. I met Nikki at her house in Moreno Valley, California, a little desert town a couple of miles due south of Colton. Nikki welcomes me into the great room of her suburban ranch house with a big screen TV over the fireplace. She's dressed simply in sweats, But the one thing I noticed right away are her colorful nails, reaching an inch past her fingertips. A little bit of femininity she maintained the whole 15 years she worked as a conductor for Union Pacific. There's not too many women on the rails. Only 6% of that workforce is female. But to Nikki, getting a job on the railroad was like winning the working class lottery. She was a single mom working three jobs to support her four kids. And the schedule was insane.
4: I worked at uh, DMV in the mornings. I worked at Walmart at night. And then on the weekends, I worked at Factory to You. Two hours sleep a day.
5: Working three jobs with four kids, even if she was home, it was tough to get to sleep. So when Nikki heard about the railroad's benefits, she wanted that job. At the railroad, there's great health care and a retirement system separate from and much better than Social Security. And as a conductor, Nikki would still have to work long hours, but she'd have much better money and federally guaranteed sleep. Congress governs railroad workers' hours and mandates they get 10 hours rest between shifts. And
4: here it is now. You guys are going to give me 10 hours at least? You got me.
5: This is a big step up. Sure, this would be a hard job, but getting hired onto the railroad was a lifeline for her family, and the salary would be enough to move them directly into the middle class.
4: And I made more money. They said I would only start with 60, still made 90. And over time, I made 100000 But it was a challenge from the start.
5: The railroad wastes no time explaining what work will be like. Early in the screening process to become a conductor, the teachers describe how much time you'll be away from home. Then the teacher gives the prospective employees half an hour to call their families and advises that if their partners don't support this demanding schedule, they shouldn't come back most times fewer than half the class returns. Brigitte Cunha, a retired yardmaster in Colton, told me what he used to say when he greeted new employees.
6: Whenever we have, I have a new guy with me, that's when I was on the ground, I'd always tell him, you know, welcome, welcome to the family. You're going to see me as much as you're going to see your family. You may see me more. And they look at you and they say, nah. Oh yeah. You see him five or ten years later and and he look at me, and I still remember that, Richard. I still remember that.
5: <laughs> when I heard about this, I thought about how hobos and the people who work on the railroad are walled off from the rest of the world in the city of the rails. Even though workers get paid well, their lives are dominated by the rails. Taking this job cuts them off from the rhythms of daily life and bonds them to each other, just like hobos and their road families. So Nikki knew what bargain she was making when she decided to join the railroad family. But this was only the beginning. Those who make it through that initial shock stay in a hotel for several weeks to get trained and to take a test to qualify to start working in the yard. But during those three weeks, Nikki endured a lot of petty harassment. And I
4: get to the hotel to get my room and my hotel reservation has been canceled. Someone stole her training manuals. They give us our books and everything. Come back, I don't have any books. They
5: even gave her broken equipment to train with. These annoyances were meant to drive her away.
4: Ain't that typical girl. I said, I'm not a pushover. Never have been. I never will be.
5: So Nikki kept cool. Like railroad women before her, Nikki had a high heels to combat boots moment in committing to a life on the rails. Nikki's came when an instructor went after her for something very precious and highly personal.
4: He goes, well, you can't work here because you have fingernails. So I reached in my purse, pulled out my clippers, and I cut them off. I said, these are mine's love. They will grow back. So everybody's like, oh.
5: The rails take a lot from you, but Nikki wanted this job, and she decided she'd tough it out. After a few months on the job, Nikki made friends with her co-workers.
4: It's 12 hours. You're just sitting there in darkness, looking at the stars. So... You have to stay awake. You hope you have an engineer that you can get along with, and you guys just talking and talking. Basically, I'm sitting there and calling out signals for the most part. So you sit there green signal, yellow signal, red signal. Just make sure he stops and he's awake.
5: During these long nights in the cab, She found out which of her co-workers would be her railroad family.
4: The guys, you know, once you got to know them, you got to know their families. You got to hang out with them. Our kids are growing up together. We got to do things together.
5: From day one, Nikki was living her life on railroad time. Most days, Nikki worked a 12-hour shift. And sometimes those routes had her staying overnight in a hotel far from home. One thing I found interesting, the railroaders don't call their work a shift. They call it a tour of duty like the military, because a lot of the culture of the railroad comes from its beginnings when it was one of the first corporations formed after the Civil War. Officers and troops from both sides of the conflict got hired on the railroad and shaped the culture and the hierarchy. This is the kind of thing new hires find out when they start to work, that the rails have a strict command and control structure that demands employees follow orders and doesn't really tolerate sassing back. Working her tour of duty in the cab of the engine, Nikki also learned by word of mouth that if you get injured, it's best not to tell the bosses if you can tough it out. She heard plenty of examples of her co-workers getting fired for reporting an injury, and the practice of covering those up is a tradition as long as the rails themselves. But when Nikki got injured in the train yard a few years after she'd been hired, there was no way she could just tough this one out. Nikki was in Southern California, next to the port of Long Beach, in the Dolores Yard.
4: And it was right before Christmas and New Year's. And so we're all, oh, Merry Christmas, see you next year, hugs and kisses. I get to the rear, step out. So I'm standing there and I'm waving goodbye, and the ground starts to shake. And as it's shaking, it's collapsing. And it was like quicksand, and I started to spin. And I'm going down, and I'm screaming, well, I got stuck. I wind up hitting it at my butt. (laughs) <laughs> and, That's how deep in you were? You like two feet, three feet? Well, still never felt the bottom. My right leg was stuck, and I couldn't move it. And my other leg is dangling, and the driver had called management. And he's screaming, the conductor's down, and we're all panicking. Satan tried to take me alive, but he underestimated I got a big butt.
5: <laughs> Nikki thinks it's funny now, but it was a serious injury. The manager came to extract Nikki from the hole, but he didn't call an ambulance.
4: The manager, he just threw me in his truck and he drove me to the hospital.
5: So Nikki's ankle was swollen and bleeding. She'd torn a ligament at the top of her foot and she couldn't stand. Her manager was panicking and UP was vulnerable to a very expensive lawsuit. So the system to suppress injuries kicked in. The injured worker is supposed to report the injury and the manager carried those forms with him. But instead of letting Nikki fill it out, he got a pen and started to write it for her.
4: While we were there at the hospital, they wrote the statements for me.
5: And when the boss writes the report, it sounds different than if the employee had written it. Everyone in this yard in L.A. knew the ground was weak where Nikki was standing. But somehow that didn't make it into the report, at least not into the manager's version.
4: They knew about that hole. You was just the one that stood on it and it gave away.
5: Jeff Dingwall, Nikki's attorney, handles a lot of these cases.
4: The railroad
6: would send out, you know, some manager to maybe even go into the treatment room with them, guiding the employee on what to say to the doctor. They would take additional statements from the employee while they were in the emergency room, sometimes under pain medication. And then what they would try to do is get these statements to not match up.
5: Imagine that. You get injured on the job and the manager comes with you to the hospital. Richard Acuna, who was also the union president in Colton, told me the second he heard one of his workers had been injured, he rushed to the hospital to make sure that Union Pacific managers weren't telling the doctors what to do. When Nikki hinted she might not sue, Union Pacific changed their tune. They did all they could to keep her happy. They had someone take her to her physical therapy appointments, get her groceries, and hand-delivered her an enhanced paycheck. You have permanent damage on your foot. So you have a case to sue
4: them? I did. But well, I did have a case. I didn't. Why didn't They you? just kept paying me, because they would pay me more. They was paying me way more than what I was making. And you know, I was comfortable. Mm-hmm. They made sure I was comfortable did at every ever part of it. Did they ever
5: explicitly say, don't sue us?
4: No, no. They mm-hmm. just says, are you going to get an attorney? I said, why? you going to treat me nice. If you're gonna keep treating me like this, why?
5: And how long were you off work?
4: Nine months.
5: For those nine months, Nikki got chauffeured around by the railroad, which was motivated to take good care of her. But years later, Nikki was gonna be dragged right back to that sinkhole. He said I embarrassed him.
4: And Did you embarrassed him. He embarrassed himself. I was just making him aware.
5: After the break, how Union Pacific got rid of Nikki. After Nikki's foot injury, the next 10 years were uneventful, as she performed her duties as a conductor with a spotless record. The railroad is nice when you play their game, and Nikki played that game when she chose not to sue after being injured. But this changed for Nikki in August 2017. Nikki was on a route from Colton to Yuma, Arizona, when her engineer saw an unexpected red flag ahead on the tracks.
4: And it's like, is that a flag? Slow the train down. We gotta stop before we get to that flag. Mind you, Yuma is just desert, sand, nothing there. You know? And I'm looking out in this field and I see three vehicles. I'm like, huh. And then they turn and they're coming towards us. And I said, we're being tested.
5: The new superintendent, Romero Barba, and two subordinates boarded Nikki's train. Since he got the job, Barba had imposed some new practices and aggressively promoted Union Pacific's new slogan to keep employees on their toes, the courage to care. Nikki described what that slogan was supposed to mean for workers.
4: If you see something happening, stop the line. Make sure this person knows, like, no, don't do it that way. Do it this way. Safer this way. And he says he has this open-door policy. You could speak to him about anything.
5: Lots of big companies take up these kinds of slogans. When they tell you if you see something, say something, they're making the dangers of the workplace the employee's responsibility. After Nikki and her engineer passed the field test, Barbara asked Nikki if she had a brake stick, a long stick used to apply the brakes instead of climbing the ladder to turn the wheel at the top of the car. Nikki hates brake sticks, and any conductor can do the job without one. But Barbara told her she had to use one. He was making them mandatory.
4: I said, well, let's talk about it. Do you realize that thing is heavy? I'm holding it up over my head. I'm turning it. Over time, it's going to ruin our rotator cups. When your shoulders hurt, you can't sleep well. So now their shoulders hurt, and they have to climb up on this car. You're going to either hurt yourself, or you can possibly kill yourself. So... He goes, oh well, huh? Why would you say that? So I'm saying, okay. So what I'm hearing from you is, during the course of my career, I didn't lost my ankle because I fell in a sinkhole. I lost my reproductive system from climbing up on cars, and now I'm.
5: Nikki had to have an emergency hysterectomy where she was rushed to the hospital right after work. She believes that this injury was work-related. All she could see with this courage to care thing was another injury. So frustrated, Nikki threw the slogan right back at Barbara.
4: I said, so you really don't have the courage to care. Well, he leaves. Everybody's like, wow, he's pissed. Okay, you know, sorry, but... We go on.
5: The railroad has lots of tough guys. So when Nikki stood up to Barba, she didn't think much of it. But Union Pacific emails about the incident described Nikki as loud, confrontational, and dissolving into tears. Meanwhile, Nikki's engineer, Mark Sylvester, who witnessed the exchange, wrote an email that supported her version of events. He described this as a regular professional conversation, the kind you'd have with managers present at an inspection. Why do these two stories sound so different? Nikki's mom, Rosalind Jackson, had an answer.
4: That's why she has such trouble, because Nikki is that person that'll challenge a man. She don't have a problem with making a man feel like you ain't a man. You're spineless.
5: Nikki didn't think much about that exchange with Barbara as she and Mark made their way back to Colton. So she was surprised by what was waiting for her when she got off the train.
4: So we get back to Colton. And I get a message saying I have a safety meeting with the director in the morning.
5: At the meeting, the manager demanded Nikki report her ankle injury and her hysterectomy. Even though the ankle injury definitely had been reported, and she had been cleared to return to work after the hysterectomy, Nikki's head was spinning.
4: He says, you said you hurt your ankle. I said, you guys knew about that. I said, you paid me nicely to be quiet and not to sue you. I filled out an injury report. You even had your managers taking me to the doctor.
5: So did this injury happen or not? I checked the Federal Railway Administration database of rail employee injuries. It shows a slip-fell-stumbled injury due to an uneven surface on December twentieth, two 2006, the day Nikki almost got swallowed into a sinkhole. This injury happened in Los Angeles County, the county where the Dolores Yard is located. The victim's age was Nikki's age at that time. 34. But that wasn't what they wanted to acknowledge in 2017. There in the office, the manager demanded Nikki write out new injury reports. This is one of the ways the railroad lays a trap for you. Her co-workers knew what was coming for Nikki, and engineer Sidney Williams recommended a lawyer, Jeff Dingwall. He'd seen this playbook a hundred times.
6: And they'll say, we need you to, to write this uh, injury report out, and typically it'll be in somebody's office where it's just you and the manager, or it's in somebody's truck on the side of a a railroad somewhere in the middle of nowhere where it's you and the manager. Sometimes the managers would write out the report themselves and make the employee sign it. Sometimes uh, they would make the employee fill it out, look at it, crumple it up, throw it away if they didn't like what it said and have them write another one. And these are examples I'm giving you from cases I've had. So this isn't like I'm just making stuff up. These have all happened. And so, You know, the pressure and the intimidation there is inherent in the process. And that's certainly what happened to Nikki.
5: I heard lots of stories like the one that Jeff described, of the manager standing over the employee in a conference room as he writes out a statement, ordering him to start again and again until he gets it right. So Nikki wrote those new reports, and the next day, Union Pacific removed her from service without pay or benefits, citing health problems, the ones she'd dealt with years before. Then her supervisor ordered her to submit medical records to prove she'd even been injured in the first place. But Nikki's attorney, Jeff, told me that really everything they were asking for from Nikki was all part of the trap.
6: What was? messed up about it if all of these injuries had been known to the railroad for a long time she had reported them she'd been treated for them she had been cleared to return back to work and now for them to say we didn't know about these things and we're going to yank you out of work and make you jump through all these hoops and do these things to get your job back is not uncommon for what they do but that's kind of what led to her lawsuit being filed
5: this time nikki was off work for four months and those months were nothing like the last time she was not being delivered groceries or paid extra by the railroad. She wasn't being paid at all. While Nikki was out of work, it was her railroad family that took care of her, those same railroaders she had vacationed with. They started coming by to check in on Nikki.
4: I mean, it was it was like a blessed feeling because a lot of them came and they gave me money to pay my bills. And it was like I got friends. You know, They came by all the time and... So I was never lonely. I was never upset. They would take me out, and I appreciated them.
5: But after four months home, getting deeper in debt, Nikki was eager to get back on the job. After persuading her doctor to turn over all her records, Nikki returned to work in January 2018. But from that moment forward, her work life was hell. Before she was allowed to start her first shift, she had to complete that ridiculous physical where she found herself sumo-wrestling a nurse.
6: A fitness for duty test, they will send them off to their own kind of hand-selected doctor and have them do a, a physical exam. In this case, she passed with flying colors.
5: But that physical wasn't the end of it for Nikki. In February 2018, Jeff Dingwall filed a whistleblower complaint with OSHA, citing the unsafe conditions in the yard and harassment. And after that complaint was filed, Nikki started getting tested a lot more.
4: He had managers testing me all day, every day. Any day I went to work, I got tested.
5: Nikki's friend Sidney Williams, now a retired engineer, remembered when Nikki had a target on her back. And he remembers Romero Barba.
4: She was on
7: their radar. More than likely, she got tested more. Nikki carries herself in a way that um, they don't like the alpha male, black or female. He went beyond the call of duty to do what they demanded that he do to go after certain people, they didn't like him. They
4: didn't like Nikki.
5: Every time Nikki got tested, it slowed down the train leaving or getting home.
4: It got to the point a lot of people didn't want to work with me because they're like, we're going to be tested. I don't feel like dealing with this today. And, you know, so people would be nervous to ride with me.
5: I mean, of course you want the railroad workers to be tested to make sure they're doing everything according to the rules of safety. They're driving these huge beasts, and a lot can go wrong. Like Carrie Westcott said, you can't be distracted working on the railroad, and you can't be nodding off driving the train. But that wasn't what happened to Nikki. They were scrutinizing her extra hard, trying to catch her, making even the tiniest mistake. They tested her arm strength. They asked her to tie the brakes, but gave her a broken brake stick. They even made her run on the treadmill.
4: We're not allowed to run. Because we are on ballast. The ballast is big rocks, so you're gonna fall. You don't wanna fall under a moving train or on the train. If they catch you running, you get rode up. So I'm like, I'm not supposed to run. And they go, You have to run for nine minutes. All I could see was myself flying off of this treadmill into the wall. Nikki passed
5: that test, but wow, this testing was something else. The crazy thing is, it's not unique to Nikki. Labor organizer and railroad engineer Ron Kamenkow listed some of the things that railroad managers could get you on.
3: There's a million things. Oh, you weren't wearing earplugs. You didn't have your safety glasses on. Your boot didn't have a three-quarter inch heel. This wasn't tucked in. You were wearing a tank top instead of a a shirt with sleeves. You didn't have lace-up boots. You had uh, slip-on boots, like motorcycle boots. I'm just going through a lot of things in my brain over the last 25 years that I or others have been accused of. And so it's very, very easy to fire almost anybody on the railroad. That's one of the additional stresses uh, that we put up with.
5: But of all of these tests she endured, the story that stuck with me most was when they made Nikki walk a mile on the ballast in the desert. It was 100 degrees. The bosses were walking on the road watching Nikki, who had to walk on the unsteady rocks by the tracks.
4: So I'm like, How many times do I have to prove myself?
5: And the whole time Nikki was walking, the managers were taunting her, trying to tempt her to stop just for a moment so she would
4: fail. And then one of the managers said, Nikki, would you like a water? I just look at him as I'm walking. Are you serious? You already told me if I stop for any reason, I am disqualified. Why would you do that? He, well, you look thirsty, right? Okay, when we finish the mile, have my water ready.
5: This is a scene I couldn't get over when I thought about it later. Here, these hostel managers have trumped up this test that they make sure takes place in scorching heat so they can mock her and try to make her fail.
4: So I sped up, and I walked faster. I finished my mile, and I'm standing there waiting on them.
5: Day after day, Nikki passed all their tests. But she knew this wasn't the end. Like her mom said, every time she entered the yard, they were watching her.
4: Every time you turn around, this guy was steady following her. You know, get her in trouble. or people that's around her, get them in trouble. If she seemed like she was being too nice to somebody, then that person became a target.
5: But Nikki was determined to stick it out to the bitter end be an exemplary employee in the hope that she wouldn't get fired. She loved her job, and she was good at it. But as her mom said, there was something more to it.
4: She took more than I would have took, I tell you that. But she needed her job, you know. She was basically a single parent.
5: After more than a year of constant surprise testing, drug testing, and scrutinizing her paperwork, Nikki did what the bosses had been waiting for, ever since she taunted Barba about his courage to care. Nikki made a mistake, one that wasn't uncommon on the railroad and sometimes results in a suspension. She was setting out a car, railroad terminology for separating a car from the rest of the train for a customer, when the car got loose and smashed into the wall of a factory.
4: I was like, look, this car just got away. What do you want us to do? The managers that came in are the managers that's targeting me with the superintendent. I'm like, great. Well, I guess I'm on vacation.
5: Nikki assumed she'd be pulled off work for a few weeks. But it wasn't a vacation. Nikki got fired. Jeff Dingwall still remembers Nikki calling to tell him, he was astonished that the railroad would take it this far.
6: I called her and she had told me what was happening. And from a legal perspective, you know, too, I'm thinking to myself, Who the hell are the idiot lawyers at the company that are, like, signing off on this? So I'm getting ticked off at my own profession. Somebody's got to, like, have a level head and and do the, you know, right thing here. And so I fired off an email to their lawyer, and I said, this is a bad idea. You know, you don't want to fire somebody who's already got a retaliation suit against you. And the response was essentially like, yep, this is what we're doing. We're going forward with it. And it was just like that matter of fact and that simple.
5: In response, Nikki sued Union Pacific for wrongful termination and harassment, a case that took two years. So all of a sudden, the upside of Richard Acuna's statement circles back to Nikki. They were her family. They were the only people who could understand what she was going through, and they showed up to support her. But that railroad family would have to put their jobs at risk to testify in support of Nikki. They'd need to take a day off work without pay and talk about how brutal and vengeful their bosses were, then go back to work under those same bosses.
4: And it was like, I gotta be sneaky, I gotta ask my friends, put their jobs on the line. And it just got to the point, I was like, these people don't need to sacrifice like I did. You know? So if I had to stop, you know? It was like, fine, I'll settle with you. You know, I'll settle. You wanted me, I'm gone, I will agree. Pay me this amount and we're fine. And that's what we did. It was like, I'll walk away.
5: They ground Nikki down, and she settled for less than she thought the case was worth because she didn't want to put her friends, her railroad family, through this trial. So in the end, the railroad won, like it always does. They paid her something, and now she's gone. That's the system, and it still works. We reached out to Union Pacific for comment. They replied, while we disagree with Ms. Jackson's rendition of the facts of the case, Union Pacific does not comment on settled cases due to the confidential nature of the settlements. So after 15 years on the railroad, Nikki took the settlement, but she's still trying to find work so she can get her full railroad pension. To do this, she's traveled to Oregon and to Mississippi, taking three-month shifts working for smaller railroads, bit by bit, trying to stitch together enough months to build up the five years she needs. This meant being away from home for stretches of time, but she, and as it turned out, a lot of other former railroad employees are on the same circuit.
4: Oregon, it it was the same as anywhere else. I got along with the guys, with my crew, and on our days off, we still hung out. We went to the rivers, and we went hiking, and being that all of us had came from Union Pacific, we really bonded.
5: (laughs) Oh, so these were a lot of other guys who were taking these three-month
4: gigs? Yes, it's a lot of us. And everywhere you go, I ran into the people that came out of Colton.
5: The thing is, like Jeff said, these stories are far from rare. After the break, what that means
0: for the rest of us.
2: tika.com.
5: It was such good luck to meet Nikki because without her, I'd never have seen the conditions in the yard. I was searching to understand the life my daughter chose when she dropped into this world, but I didn't see the other people in the city of the rails, the ones who keep the place running and the price they pay. The railroads are something we see, but don't see. They're big and noisy, and those qualities blot out everything else. But after last year's threat of a railroad strike, many eyes took a look at the railroads for the first time, and many more in the last month, as news spread of the Norfolk Southern train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. Both events reminded the public how crucial trains are. Most people didn't know that if the railroads came to a stop, it would be a massive blow to the supply chain, a loss of $2 billion a day to the American economy. So let's start with the rail strike. Because of what I'd learned from workers like Nikki, I knew it wasn't about money. During contract negotiations with the railroad unions, the railroads offered workers an astonishing 25% pay increase, retroactively, meaning back pay of $5,000. But it wasn't a surprise to me that more than half the union members turned that down. They wanted a more decent workplace, and most of all, they wanted paid sick days. And how could the railroads say no to that? Their employees worked through the pandemic to keep the country stocked with toilet paper and the tanks full of gasoline, but couldn't get a paid day off if they got sick. And the railroads wouldn't budge on that. They say, here, take this pile of money, but you gotta work sick. A lot of railroad workers were quitting.
7: All they want is sick pay, dude. Sick pay for the rail workers. Strike, do it. All I can say is you better give these people what they want, because if you shut the railroad down, it shuts down our whole country.
5: Among the rail workers quitting in droves was Robert Hudson from back in episode two.
3: I quit because, honestly, the, uh, the nature of the work had gotten so stressful that it just wasn't worth it to me anymore. If you ever wanted to have a life, um, you have to sort of kiss it goodbye and, and just work on the railroad. You can't plan anything. You can't schedule anything. Whenever you try to have, like, a doctor's appointment, you have to tell the doctor, yeah, I don't know if I'll be able to make it, but I'm going to try for this date or that date. I was on call for the vast majority of, like, the 14, 15 years that I was here at the railroads, 24-7, every single day of the year, especially holidays.
5: The work was too stressful. The schedule was too unpredictable. Good reasons for anyone to look for a new job. But these aren't run-of-the-mill work complaints. That was clear when I spoke with J.P. Wright, too. Between the hours, the conditions, and the management... Working on the railroad was killing him.
0: You could speak to my co-workers and they would tell you I had a nervous breakdown while I was working in the last several months. Mm-hmm. I just was completely insanely pissed off and just miserable. And that's when I finally said to my wife, they're going to kill me. This isn't an issue of I'm tired and I just don't want to go to work anymore. It's either I'm going to go to work and they're, they're going to bring me home in a box.
5: It's not just J.P. and Robert who feel that way. It used to be that this was a job handed from one generation to the next, but no longer because the railroad takes too much away.
3: When I hired in, nobody quit the railroad. When I hired out in Chicago, I worked with a lot of young men who were the sons and grandsons and great-grandsons of railroad workers. You see less and less and less of that now. You can hear railroad workers say this today. I don't want my son railroading. This is not a good sign.
5: So what's the story here? The railroads are one of the most difficult and dangerous jobs in America. Everyone knows that going in, and that's why the people who work on the railroad get paid so well. But despite these good salaries, even people close to retirement are quitting. What happened to this once great working-class job? Precision-scheduled railroading. PSR means doing a lot more with a lot less. It's capitalism gone crazy. But as a management style, it might sound depressingly familiar, no matter where you work. Under PSR, in the last five years, railroads have cut their workforce by nearly a third, gotten rid of a quarter of their locomotives and 40% of their boxcars, and started running longer and longer trains. So precision-scheduled railroading is also the reason that recently Congress started hearing from businesses demanding action. Apart from the workers, manufacturers couldn't get their goods to market because rail service was so unreliable. As I very often, CEOs get called to Washington, So it was a big deal when Transportation and Infrastructure Committee chair, Congressman Peter DeFazio, got to lay into the CEOs of big railroads in his opening remarks.
7: We are at a point of crisis. Freight service in the United States of America, which used to have the best in the world, is abysmal. The freight railroad uh, CEOs say, poor service. It's not, had nothing to do with us. Oh, no, no, it's COVID, supply chain. Oh, their workforce. Oh, by the way, you laid off one hell of a lot of your workforce. And a lot of them aren't coming back to you because they have been disrespected, mistreated. And you've made it more dangerous for your workers with these cuts.
5: At this 2022 hearing, DeFazio delivered a no bullshit rebuke to the men responsible for driving JP to a nervous breakdown.
7: You're not looking to change. I'm talking to the CEOs now. You're not looking to change. You're just raking in record profits. Whoa, more dividends for shareholders. And oh, hey, by the way, my salary also goes up. And my stock goes up. Isn't that great? Well, the country suffers.
5: DeFazio has been speaking in Congress about the decline of the railroads for the past 20 years. And he's got a lot to say about PSR.
7: I've been talking about this for a long time. And people say, oh, that's just DeFazio carrying on. Well... Now it's DeFazio joined with some very unlikely allies. That would be the chemical industry, the energy industry, the agriculture industry, who are bemoaning what has been done, the destruction that has been wrought on freight rail in America with so-called precision scheduled railroading.
5: This slash-and-burn management style transformed America's largest railroads from a fussy old technology into a profit-generating machine. They now make profits on a par with the world's richest technology companies, in part by driving down conditions for the workers. As regional monopolies, railroads charge outrageous fees and deliver cars when it's convenient for them, not necessarily the customer. And with them making more money than they've ever made before, they've got no incentive to change and no government bodies to demand that they do so. And when workers tried to strike, the government wouldn't let them.
0: So just in case you were wondering, mm-hmm. you know, if we were, if the supply chain issues were gonna get any
1: better, they're not. Uh, he's the well, chair Right president. now, President Biden is asking Congress to intervene to avert a potential rail strike before well, Christmas. The
7: extraordinary level of corporate greed in America, there is no better example than what is taking place in the rail industry today.
5: Most of 2022, there was a rumble about a coming rail strike. The railroads and the 14 unions were at a stalemate. Ten of those unions ratified the contract by thin margins, but the four largest unions rejected it. Those four unions threatened to strike. If they did, the others wouldn't cross the picket line, meaning the whole rail network would come to a standstill. More goods stalled at port, grain growing musty in silos, chemicals piling up at refineries. That's when Congress stepped in to force the workers to accept a contract, and it's illegal for them to strike. Even President Biden, who famously commuted to the Senate daily on an Amtrak train and reminds everyone of his support of the unions, backed the legislation to make the strike illegal. As his press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, said,
7: The president, of course, supports, he supports paid sick leave uh, for all Americans and for including uh, rail workers. But he does not support any bill or amendment that will delay a bill that's getting to his desk by Saturday.
5: Those who give up so much to work on the railroad, give up holidays with their kids, push through injuries and hazardous conditions, deal with tests upon tests from their superiors. Those people were not even worth considering when a profit was to be made. And Biden would be dragged by business and political opponents if the railroads went on strike. So I guess sick days can wait, at least for the employees who drive the train. In the last few weeks, many of the big railroads have agreed to offer sick days to the craft unions, like the workers who inspect the cars or lay the traps. By cutting back the staff so dramatically, the railroads need to hire a lot of people, and Union Pacific offering a $35,000 hiring bonus has started to work. The number of people working on the railroad increased by 6% in January, but they still have to deal with the fact that working for the railroad now has a terrible reputation. Go take a look at Glassdoor. It gave UP a 2.1 employer rating, as one railroader wrote, pros, great pay, fun, and exciting, Cons:" Management is cutthroat, looking for a reason to fire anyone. I promise, I did not get Ron Kammenkow to write that review. He's the veteran railroader who characterizes the worker management relationship with those three little words.
3: They hate us. Nobody treats other human beings in the way that we are being treated unless they actually hate us. They really do hate us. They're spying on us. They're harassing us, they're threatening us, they're disciplining us, they're talking down to us, they're being condescending. They're they're like a malicious overlord who lacks any sort of basic respect for us as a worker and as a human being. And combine that atmosphere with this constant work, constant fatigue, constantly being away from home, Throw in the attendance policy where you can't even get away from this to get some respite and some rest and some time off the job. And you can quickly understand how this is becoming an untenable situation for numerous engineers and conductors in this country.
5: Of course, this is much bigger than the railroads. Like Robert Hudson said, they're the pulse of the economy. They keep the country moving. They've been doing it for 200 years. But what happens when that force begins to buckle under the weight of its own greed?
3: You know, we have to have people run the railroad in this country. The wheels of industry could grind to a halt and we could have a national crisis on our hands. Trains are the most fuel-efficient means of transportation known to humanity. Every American should really be concerned about this, not just railroad workers.
5: But a lot of railroad workers are past caring. They're out. And so are a lot of other people. In the last few years, during the pandemic and past its peak, the country has experienced what the media calls the big quit. People like JP and Robert voluntarily quitting their jobs, saying, I'm working too hard, working too long hours. It's not going to get any better. And I've had it. Sort of sounds like Mike Brody in our first episode when he told me, we're all just going around in circles. Could it be that the young hobos were onto something? What does your work mean to you? For many of the people working on the railroad, the trains mean a lot more than a paycheck. Talking to Nikki, I saw how the rails transformed her. They gave her a lifeline, a new kind of family, and boosted her to the middle class. But when we look at a train, we're not thinking about the workers. We're not thinking about the risks they take. We're not thinking about the power the train holds. We're not thinking about the power of the railroads. The reason Union Pacific can offer these huge hiring bonuses is that they're swimming in cash, $7 $7 billion net last year. And they didn't spend that on the workers, but on buying back their own stock. $6.3 billion worth. That's a lot more than the $4.6 spent on the employees' pay and benefits. The workers tried to strike. It was in the news for a few weeks when we were all worried about how our Christmas presents wouldn't get to us, but the Congress forced the contract on the workers and most of us forgot about it. Which is how these companies get away with it. That's being railroaded. People walk away from the railroad to take control of their lives again. Robert works at a cemetery now. JP moved to Austria. Travelers walk away, too. Sometimes they're done for good, like Morgan. And sometimes they're back on the tracks after a stint, like Mike Brody. Would Ruby be home for good when she landed back here? It was in this context that I got the good news that Ruby was nearly home. Ruby and her boyfriend made it north to New York and visited her brother Ben. I'd heard from them when they were in Minneapolis, which has a big train-hopping community. They spent a pleasant week there, then hopped the High Line, the transcontinental route that goes right past C.C. Ryder's trailer, on their way to Spokane. I was so happy to know about her progress, but I was also a little anxious. In a way, it was worse knowing what train she'd hopped. When I was ignorant of this, I thought less about it, but now I couldn't get her out of my mind, wondering if something might go wrong on her way home. Then, one Sunday, Ruby called ecstatic. They were hitchhiking from Spokane to Washington with their dogs and got picked up by a pet-loving worshipper of our Savior Jesus Christ, who was moved to give Ruby her car. She took them to the DMV and turned over her registration to Ruby, who called me as they were just about to hit the road in the Jesus Mobile and head south to San Francisco. The car was a 1985 Geo Metro covered in Jesus stickers. Ruby described putting her hair in pigtails and donning a dress so she'd look innocent if they got stopped by the cops. But the problem was her boyfriend, a rough guy covered in tattoos. Oh well, God might just be on their side. Jesus take the wheel. After all my worrying, wondering if one day I'd be going down some back alley or train yard to retrieve Ruby, I was just delighted by this image of her cruising back into the city with her two dogs and her hobo boyfriend and in the Jesus Metro. That woman, I wish I could kiss her. For me, this was a miracle. I knew I wasn't going to be Ruby's first stop back in town either. Likely I'd get another call once she got back, asking me to get coffee. I was looking forward to that. I also recognized by now I wouldn't be expected to offer an opinion about anything else unless asked. My approval was not part of the equation. And of course my life had changed too. I'd pulled off Christmas at our home by the lake, but now here at the barn, I'd given away a lot of our old belongings. But she was coming home, and Ruby was already off the rails. So naturally, I thought my time in this world was coming to a close until we heard the news. A
2: cadaver dog searches the remains of an abandoned New Orleans warehouse where a fire killed eight homeless people.
3: We talked to two victims that escaped before the fire got to
5: them. News of a fire in New Orleans spread quickly through the traveling community. A popular squad in the Ninth Ward had burned to the ground. Eight young riders had been lost in the flames and a warehouse right beside the railroad tracks. And while major outlets had picked up the story, it was only to mention that some homeless people had died in the fire. I knew there was a lot more to it than that. I wanted to tell the stories of the people who died in the fire. And there was still a lot that Ruby didn't want to tell me about the time she'd been away. Maybe in New Orleans, I could get those answers.
1: There was a big room in the middle, It had these huge doors that we'd all hang out on and it was like right by the train yard. So it was like perfect for us. I could hear
5: the trains in the background. So I'm like, are you on a train? No,
3: mom, stop asking me questions
5: this
2: big party where like 60 or 70 people came because we were leaving, it was awesome. But then at that party... That's the thing, there's a lot of
7: shadows in New Orleans. You know, it's a shadow town, that's part of its romance is all around the bright lights and carnival of the French Quarter on all sides of it are the shadows. Dark streets, empty buildings, open fields, and the train yards, of course.
5: That's next episode on City of the Rails. of the Rails is hosted by me, Danelle Morton and developed in partnership between Flip Turn Studios and iHeart Podcast Want to give us a piece of your mind? Want to tip us off? You only have two episodes left Get those messages in The number is 707-653-0339 We just might use it in the show And if you're a worker with a story to tell please give me a call I'm working on a series of stories about the railroads in the workplace and I want to hear from you And if you want to follow along Find us on Instagram at FlipTurnPods. Pods. One day, I'll start posting at Danelle Ryder, too. At iHeart, our team is executive producer and showrunner Julian Weller. Our executive producer at Flip Turn is Mark Healy, senior producer and editing master Abu Zafar, and of course our ladies' squad, Shina Ozaki and Zoe Denkla. Plus, we have new recruits. Thank you to Tricia Mukherjee, Jackie Huntington, and Jessica Kreinchich for stepping in these last few weeks. With production support from Marcy Depina, Original music every episode by Aaron Kaufman. Our theme music is Wayfaring Stranger, performed by Profane Sass. Thanks to Scott Machad at Flail Records. Thanks Alex French, who pitched in while finishing up a show of his own, Let's Start a Coup. You can hear it wherever you're listening to this. Our logo is by Lucy Quintanilla and uses a photograph by Mike Brody. And at iHeart, thanks to Nikki Etour and Bethann Macaluso. And in this episode, Jason English, too. We'll be back next week in New Orleans on City of the Rails.
4: There's no distance too far for the perfect trip.
5: Hi, checking in
4: for... Or the perfect table.
5: Hey, where are you? Coming!
4: And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card...
0: Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you
4: made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
0: Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end.